Welcome to the Relaxed Running Podcast, the show that helps runners and athletes in running-based sports transform the way they run. Here's your host, Tyson Popplestone. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Relaxed Running Podcast. I'm your host, Tyson Popplestone. Before we get into the show today, I'm pumped to let you know that our Technique Analysis membership is now available It's interesting in the sport of distance running, for so many of us, whenever we think about improving running performance, whether that's actually running PBs or simply lifting the amount we enjoy the sport, we're quick to look to training, nutrition, technology, which are obviously all really good things. But one area that so many runners need to look to swimmers, golfers, tennis players, and cyclists to be reminded or to be inspired by is that the efficiency of the movement is the key ingredient to progress. When you take some time to learn to complete the movement well, the very foundation that you build your running upon is strengthened. Now, over the last few months, I've been working with quite a few athletes that I coach on the technique analysis program using the app OnForm, which allows us to go back and forth from wherever you are in the world and offer detailed breakdowns of what you're doing well and what you can improve in the own efficiency of your running. Now, for a very limited time, or for the first 20 members on the new membership, you can get access to that for $19.95. That's Aussie dollars per month. That'll give you contact with me. We'll work together on a monthly basis, doing regular updates on your own running technique, efficiency, areas of improvement, and simple changes that you can make to make sure that you're covering the ground as effectively as you possibly can You don't need to be an elite athlete to get improvement from your own running efficiency. So regardless of your fitness levels, your competition levels, your age, how new or old you are to the sport, take advantage of that discounted price because it's only going to be up there, as I mentioned, for the first 20 members. After that, this program is going to go up to around $60 per month. So if you're interested in getting that cheap discounted rate and having that forever, sign up using the discount code in the description below. But for today... Let me introduce the guest. His name is Raf Bohr and it's his second time on the show. If you've not heard of Raf before, he's the founding director of Frontrunner Physiotherapy and Frontrunner Sports Management. He's performed at a sustained world-class level as an athlete, physiotherapist and endurance coach. With holistic insight into peak human performance, he works with junior elite, elite and executive athletes to guide them towards their peak athletic and human potential. During his own athletic career, Raf achieved a peak of a number three ITU duathlon world ranking, achieving podium finishes at the ITU Oceania, Asian and European Championships, and sixth at the ITU World Championships. As always, Raf is an absolute fount of knowledge. He's a source of wisdom on all things distance running, endurance sports. And today we cover quite a few things We talk about the importance of patience in the improvement of your running career. We talk about developing a relaxed mindset in the athletes that we work with and the athletes themselves. We talk about time management and how important this is in life and sport, understanding training load and the impact of our ancestors or the genetic impact on our own running potential. We talk about depths and records in the Kenyan running community with specific reference to the recent marathon world records in men's and women's events being absolutely smashed. We talk about balancing effort and data in athletics and, as always, a whole heap more. If you're interested to find out more from Raf, make sure you check out the links in the description below. But for now, let's get into the conversation with myself 
and Mr. Raf Bohr. I'm actually, I'm coming to Perth on Wednesday. I haven't been there for about 10 years. Oh, mate, we'll have to catch up. It's, I would, um, I'd love to. Did I was you ever go to it. Siena's? Did you ever go to Siena's, the Italian restaurant in Leadable? That's sort of like where all the meetings tend to get held. That are up the road at another Italian restaurant called Spritz. So we'll um, we'll catch up for a, a long lunch, mate. Man, it's actually funny. So the reason the reason I actually uh, reached out to you the other day to come on the pod is because I was thinking about Perth and the fact that I hadn't been there for ten years, and you're just entrenched in my memory as like a, a, a like my mum used to always look at you and go, "Bloody hey, Raf's run. Look at this. Watch this bloke run." And so huh. in my mind, I, I still see you from like a thirteen-year-old guy's thirteen-year-old uh, kid's eyes, just absolutely smoking me around the track. Um, so when I was thinking about coming to Perth, you naturally popped into my mind, and I was I was gonna uh, I was gonna tell you today, but I was gonna text you and let you know that yeah, if you're around, mate, we'll have to. I'll, I would love to come to Siena's and catch up. It'd be uh, it'd yeah, be good to good to see. You. I tell you, it's been a bloody long time since I've I've seen you face to face. Yeah, gosh, remember, I do remember when you were you were a young bloke, and um, it was more yokai and reserve than the track for me because I think um, yeah, that's where I I remember. Uh, seeing you running around with Mark Saunders and Mark C and, and all the rest of them in the old days. So uh, it's interesting now, Dean, obviously, like we said, you didn't, I think we didn't, we realised you didn't cross paths as much as I thought you might have. But yeah, he's had a good year, um, kept on keeping on. So yeah, some of the remnants of that old Mark Saunders day still still going. <laughs> is Mark still around? Mark is. She's back training, actually. So I, I, I'm not 100% up to date with what her goals are, but she's she's um, been through a few health or injury challenges, come back, and she's actually got some aspirations. You see her, she's heading for something. She's building for something. There's a, a championship or something in her, her near horizon because she seems to be consistently training and motivated. So um, maybe you need to get her on, have a chat and find out what's coming <laughs> yeah. up. Tell you, yeah, we've got some, uh, we've got plenty of conversation to have after years of break as well. But mate, how have the thing, how have things been? It, it must have been. It's probably pushing two years since you were last on here. I remember I was still living at an apartment mm. in Melbourne, but the, the the weeks seem to just slip away. So, I mean, it seems like there's absolutely plenty going on. You're saying just before I hit record that um, you've, you've you've got someone taking over the physio side of things. You're obviously looking after the coaching side of things with your crew over there. Yeah, so I think like anyone in healthcare, I think we've been sort of, um, I suppose, cursed then blessed in a way where I think with um, with all the challenges of COVID, it then um, segued into people being a bit more health conscious. And um, I think there's been a running boom. There's been a, a raise or an increase in consciousness around health and well-being. So all of our little, our little operations, our little services have just filled up a bit more and it got to the point where um my my main passion is obviously coaching people i don't mind if i'm coaching my managers in a business or um or working with them more collaboratively uh nowadays but uh helping people achieve their potential and i think just with the range of different experiences um in terms of education and travel around the world and stuff i'm i'm happy for that to be in different contexts it doesn't have to be just coaching them with running but that that's that's got to be helping people achieve their potential so um yeah, one of the the big changes was getting a physio who'd been at the Eagles for eight years in to help uh, grow our physio business. So we had to spin that out of the coaching business because they'd always been sort of in together. Um, and that's really kicked on since he's come in. And then the coaching business, we've sort of just allowed that to continue to fill a bit more gradually. And the retail um, people are out there still running and some of them, you know, come and see us for help with their shoes and their nutrition. So 
yeah, it's become um, actually a little bit easier for me with better management and, and that next phase of growth has actually freed me up to get back to just coaching more, which has been good. So we've had some good success this year, with, particularly with some of our distance athletes um, and excited for summer to see if we can get some, um, some good speed up there as well. So who are some of the athletes? You mentioned Dean uh, before, going yeah. pretty well. Who else have you got on the radar that's going really well? Is it still predominantly a marathon-focused group? Well, Ben's our middle distance coach. So he, he's got Tom Moorcroft, who um, he won um, a few state titles over 800 and qualified for his first national final last year in the 1500. So he's at 346. So Ben, yeah, so he's moving well. He's, he's, a, he's a nice athlete, great mover. So he's with Ben and Ben more manages the middle distance program. But my passion is the distance. So um, in triathlon, we've got a couple of really good triathletes um, coming up. And then in the marathon, obviously, Dean got second in Sydney to Brett Robinson a few weeks ago. He backed it up on the weekend with a big money in Perth and got um, a second there behind a Kenyan who was uh, was here for the race. So he's he's made uh, more money in the last month than he's made in the last uh, 20 years of running. Um, <laughs> And then Sinead Noonan, who's who's a really top quality athlete, starting to show her potential. She uh, qualified for the World Road Running in Riga. She was second in the 10K at Gold Coast. She was third in the National Half Marathon on the Sunshine Coast. She's won the HBF Run, the Cedar Surf, uh, the Fremantle Runs here. So, so she's um, she's one to watch on the track. I think her best distance at the moment with her development is probably going to be on the on the track. Um, her 5K is now about 15.50, so we'll, we'll hopefully see that get under 15.30 this summer, which should be which should be competitive, which should be good. Gee, Dean's done well with that turnaround because what was uh, – Sydney was early September. It was probably four weeks ago. Did you say he backed up with the Perth Marathon? Yeah, so I think um, – yeah, it segues into a, into a broader discussion on, on tolerance to load. But I think he um, – yeah, he, he sort of only decided on the Wednesday that um, they only announced this big prize money on Wednesday and, and obviously there wasn't a lot of time for anyone to, to find out who didn't already live in Perth to get here. So um, obviously it wasn't necessarily my preference, but he's uh, he's a big, strong boy and obviously for a guy with Dean's uh, earning potential, um, it, you know, in terms of tax-free income, it's probably a it's almost a 30 grand bonus he's picked up in the last month when you're were paying if you were paying tax so if someone offers you another five grand or ten grand um after having a good payday in sydney you know i can understand that him and his family need to rationalize the pros and cons of that and he decided to run and, and did well just to measure his effort he pulled a couple of the other guys in the squad through to nice pb so he ran 229 for second another guy james ran 230 and ryan bailey who went to the olympics in triathlon ran 231 so it ended up being that he provided a bit of an anchor for the for the rest of the group and pulled some of the guys through to some good times as well so it was good good for our group to have him there um and i think it was fairly comfortable for him just to to get that done yeah it's it is interesting this is one conversation that i've had with a number of people recently and so much of it seems to come back to yeah, not only load tolerance, but also even just the shoe technology. It's been amazing mm. that even 10 years ago, you would run around in a pair of light flats and you'd pull up the week after a marathon or even like a 10K road race for four or five days after your calves were really uh, tight. Mm. And I always sort of had a little bit of a hobble going on. But it seems that the further along we go, like Brett Robinson ran his 207 Australian record not a great deal of time after his London marathon, I think it was. I think he ran 2.10, mm. struggled with stitches, came out, ran 2.7. And 
And that was the first time that I stopped and went, hang on a second. Like, I, I thought it was a two or three time a year thing, the marathon. But the way people are running it now, it's mm. it's not that uncommon to hear about stories like what you just mentioned with Dean. Yeah, I think Lisa Waitman, we were, we, Dean and I were in Osaka in um, in March and she backed up there and ran the next week in Tokyo. Um <laughs> And yeah, she was she was quick and quicker. I know she was quicker and then quick still. I should say the second week was a bit slow, but they're both very strong. But I think um, you know the way with someone like Dean, essentially touch wood. You know we've been working together now for eight years, and you know he's never missed more than a day or two of training in that time um, through all the iterations and challenges of life. So his um, durability is second to none, and I think. For a Western, for a Western athlete, he's very non-reactive. So when he's doing the training or when he's preparing his body, he's a very conscious guy. So he's not um, one to go to training and just react to what's going on. He's very planned, and if he's doing a workout, he's doing what's asked of him as easily as possible, so he can recover and absorb it. So when you've got a guy who's that good at planning, um, I think a lot of runners are very poor in that regard. So he's got an outlying strength in terms of. He deeply understands uh, the context. Um, he acts in accordance with that understanding. He's not a reactive person, so no one can really move him from from thinking in a logical and confident manner. Um, and he'll constantly perform at a level that's high because of that. You know, he's got a very good psychology for that sort of environment, and that competition, that marathon. Yeah. Yeah. So when you say he's uh, really good or really well known for his planning, like what's he planning? Like session structure, recovery. Like what comes under that umbrella? I think if you if you think back to when when you were running, um, I think when you go to the track for a workout, um, most people would take the approach like where they would look at a workout and and sort of be if they're doing eight by a k with sixty seconds that that they would be focused on how fast they could run every k. Whereas it, it's also my side being more of a systems-based science sort of guy, I, w- I would tell Dean, well, if your anaerobic threshold is this bandwidth, then you just need to do eight reps in that bandwidth. And if he he would view success of that workout as doing the eight reps at the specified pace easily, whereas most people would look at the external output and say, how fast did I run the reps? But if you do the reps flat out, flat out they might not be at the right intensity and you might not be able to go any quicker in a race because you've essentially raced in training so dean will understand the difference between preparing and racing and he will train to prepare and then race to test and and when he tests if he needs to test he can he can empty the clip because he never empties the clip in training he always builds his capacity and and it's very much um in line with sort of more um african type training that i've seen with the kenyans where you won't see Kipchoge do any races except for his marathons. He won't go any faster than he needs to go in training. Everything is very much controlled so that when it's time to really unleash, it's it's when they're going to get paid and when it's going to have a finish, a, a start and a finish and, and some money and some um, reputation based on the back of it. Yeah. So when you're planning a session for, for an athlete like Dean, are you planning around heart rate or are you looking at time or is there some combination? What's that middle ground that you're trying to hit? So for his recovery runs, because he's got three kids now and he's got a management job, he'll often be running um, to and from work. So he'll generally do that to heart rate and keep his heart rate under 145 beats a minute. So that's sometimes that's five minutes a K for him. Sometimes that's 440. Um, 
And then because Perth's so flat, we can generally give him a bandwidth to work with for any threshold or VO2 max work where he'll just be trying to work to a pace. Um, occasionally when we go over hills, he'll work to perceived effort. But if you're working over hills, heart rate becomes a little bit non-responsive and a bit variable and pace is obviously the same. So often with hills, the good thing is it teaches the runner just, just to be adaptable. Um, and to be more internally clued in so that they're looking at how they're feeling. Um, and when we do hills, it's obviously perceived effort. So we use a bit of everything, mate. Yeah. So so when you're sitting down to structure a training program, are you, and just to use uh, Dean as the example, I mean, mate, like speaking about him now, I realise I need to reach out and get him on again because he's an interesting character for a number of reasons. Um, yeah, one of the things that you said really stands out to me about him is his consistency. The fact he's missed mm. less than a handful of days in the eight years that you've been coaching him is testament to his progress i mean it's hard not to improve radically when you've been that consistent and even more on top of that and uh, you know uh, adds more fuel to the fire of this conversation is just how naturally your body's going to strengthen up if you're taking the time to recover if you're not overexerting yourself in the sessions you're saving the effort for the right times but are you sitting down on a weekly basis a monthly basis like what kind of time frame are you planning his work out from I think it gets to the point with Dean now where sort of, um, and I had this conversation with Patrick Sang um, with Kipchoge, where when you've got someone who's well, um, a ma the master becomes the student. Do you know what I mean? When you when you have a deal of great deal of experience and knowledge, and you're working with athletes, you start to notice well, why is one athlete improving consistently, longitudinally? Um, and other athletes don't, and you start to realise there might be something inherent to that person that's a little bit more suited to that sort of monastic way of, of life. And they're improved. Like, if you understand that the human body is, is built by God to improve and adapt, and it will improve, like in 15 years of coaching, every single person who starts running will improve. No matter how you think, the body adapts as an adaptive organism to whatever you do repetitively, and whatever you do expands. So, any human being who you coach gets better. So when an athlete attributes normal improvement to the coach, um, it, it's not actually the coach. It's just the body's adaptive subconscious and unconscious response to any stimulus. What the coach is trying to do is prevent errors or prevent repetitive errors that might prevent a person from longitudinally reaching their potential. So for someone like Dean, his ability to understand the context and then to accumulate an understanding of how his body responds, how much recovery his body needs, and also just to fundamentally expect that he'll improve if he does the right things. A lot of people will think, um, I might be forsaken. Um, I might not get what I want. And if you don't believe you're gonna get success, then obviously that's gonna manifest. So I think having a positive outlook, having an ability to appropriately act and understand the context, to then have the right effort, um, the right concentration and then the right reflection on when you do make a mistake in training or or not get a response you want from training that you then make adjustments over time. So it, it requires, um, I think, a good relationship, but it requires a certain personality that has a positive outlook. And I think in our culture now, a lot of people are reactive and constantly want to chop and change and they end up becoming a bit like a cat chasing their tail. Whereas with someone who's got Dean's sort of temperament, he's happy to be patient and play the long game. And I think over time, that's that's served him particularly well. You know? Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned Patrick saying, I had uh, Sarah Gearhart here. I don't know if you've read her book or you know who she is. 
we share the same sun or we share the sun is the book she wrote. And it was all about the time that she spent training or or sort of uh, being around Patrick Sang and his crew as Kipchoge and, you know, Faith Kipyagin and everyone were training Mm -hmm. for their respective events. And there does seem to be, and this is a massive generalization, you probably know more about it than me, but the East Africans, especially the top performers, uh, bearing in mind Elliot Kipchoge's in my mind as I speak about this, there does mm. seem to be a real appreciation for that long, patient approach. It's not so reactive, as you say. It's a far more um, – there there's a, seems to be a lot more appreciation for what can be achieved in 12 months or at least keeping your body in its top form uh, for 12 months' time. Like I remember Sebastian Coe years ago saying that uh, when you reach a certain point of performance, he said he panicked because he was like, oh, well, there's not really any way to go from here. Like it's this is me at my best. And his dad, who was coaching him at the time, I think it was, said, "No, no, but you can go, you can go horizontally. Like, let's maintain this for as long as we possibly can, because three thirty today is an Olympic medal, and three thirty in three years is an Olympic medal. We've just got to make sure that your ability mm-hmm. to to keep hitting that time is maintained. And sure, there's a lot of ways to do that, but uh, Patrick Sang seems to be the kind of temperament that you dream for so many of your athletes to." be able to embody because um, I, I think when you eliminate some of the rush, it helps you see the the training process so much more clearly. I know that's true for me whenever I'm in a hurry. And, and honestly, like I think me trying to get ready in, in six months for Melbourne Marathon forced me to mm. train at a level mm. which my body just wasn't ready for after having years off real structured training. I threw a workload at it that was like, Tyus, what are you doing, mate? Like, you know, you would never give this workload to any of your athletes. What are you, <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. But that emotional factor does still get involved. So um, to, to, to have someone like a Patrick saying, just to be able to share wisdom like that is interesting. But mm. is that something that you're, you're working consciously on trying to cultivate with your athletes? Because so much of the attention is obviously around training, and I get that and avoiding errors and structuring and uh, just helping them uh, avoid the pitfalls of a lot of time your own training, but also other things that their emotions might not let them see. Like, how do you approach that conversation or developing yeah. that in your athletes? Because, man, I know that on the spectrum of athletes, you've got some wild reactive athletes and you have the Deans and the Stu McSwains of the world who are very hard to fluster. You think if you if you want to create an environment where your athletes are relaxed, then you have to be relaxed. So I think one of the biggest things for me was is is to become um, a little bit less busy. So obviously getting a business partner and allowing him to sort of um, help grow the business and and create prosperity for his family and work together with him on that, and then to have more time for my own um, development and do some more study and do some more uh, personal development work with my business and and professional coach. Um, Essentially, like if you want your athletes to be Zen, you have to be Zen. And if you, if you want your athletes to be confident, you have to be confident. And um, I think the body, the body's more intelligent than the mind. So I think you have to understand that a lot of these African cultures have, have a a stronger connection to their, um, their broader human nature, not just their compulsive mind and their reactive body. You know, they, they grow up in a, in a, in a different set of circumstances. And one of the, one of the best things through the COVID period is you got to work with uh, an Eritrean athlete called Hab Tom Samuel through one of the Dutch um, agencies that, that manages him. And he's now um, just started college at New Mexico, but he's run like 27, 13, uh, 27, 20 for 10 K third in the world juniors, phenomenal guy. 
and it was very similar to to what I saw in Kenya with him. He's a a guy who um, expects success, is relaxed, is confident, um, doesn't necessarily um, worry about things not going well. Whereas I think a lot of Western athletes, you're trying to create a less reactive mind so they can relax because the brain's very thirsty for glycogen. If you if you're worried or stressed. Um, it's taking away from you producing energy in your in your legs and in your lungs and in your heart that are the areas that are evolved in running. So I think the ability to switch off um, and relax is definitely a skill in Africa, but it comes from a broader understanding of of the human condition and a perspective on maybe that sort of spiritual part of their nature. So that's that's a big a big thing for me is is if I want my athletes to be relaxed, I have to be relaxed, and yeah. so. Uh, they'll mirror off you because a lot of, especially if you're working with young people, they're naturally reactive and socially um, not particularly grounded yet. They haven't formed a strong sense of perspective and they're still affected by a lot of external things. So at the point at which you become very grounded and centred, you provide a bit of an anchor for them to come back to. Yeah, it's a really good point. It's actually one thing I learned a lot through training with um, Sudanese athlete. I'm sure you remember Dua Yoa. Yeah. So Dua uh, came and moved to Ballarat when I was living in Ballarat. And he'd been in Australia for, it must have been eight or 10 years, but he was only 20 at the time. So it was, you know, just over or less than half of his life that he'd been here. So like uh, the traditional ways of the way that he operated was still well and truly entrenched. And I remember whenever I was around Dua, whether it was at training or whether we were out shopping or whether we were just hanging out for a coffee, there was a pace that he operated at, which was just unknown to both me than any of my friends that I hung around. I used to get frustrated, but I would never say it out loud, but I was more frustrated, I guess, with myself looking back because I constantly had the next thing on the list. Whereas if I mm. said to Dua, hey, let's go get a coffee, in Dua's mind, all right, we're doing coffee. Like, let's meet at 12, and if we get home at 4, fantastic. But my mind was like, no, no, like coffee ends at 1 because i got to go home and do whatever i got to do before mm. training at 4. And uh, it, it definitely, like you mentioned, the, the Western mindset, obviously the way we operate here is at a very busy pace. I've actually just, uh, I, I just purchased this book the other day. I listened to it on Audible a while ago. It's called 4,000 Weeks. And yeah, wow. uh, so I don't know if you've heard of this one, but it's called 4,000 Weeks. So the story so behind four, Yes. So the average human lifespan is yeah. the, the title essentially. So you've got 4,000 weeks, give or take, uh, time management for mortals. And what this guy speaks about in such an unreal way is that the one thing that the productivity gurus and the time management heroes of our age fail to remember is that in 80 years, or in my case, you know, 46 years or whatever it is, like chances are you're going to be dead. Like there's a lot on your to-do. And even if it's not that, let's say 5,000, 5,500 is I think the oldest person to ever live. Um, There's a lot of things that you're going to leave undone. And I often notice uh, and the one thing that I've been really trying to focus on in myself over the last, especially month, because I just picked up this thing, uh, I just picked up this realization was I'll often get to the end of the day and realize, no, there's 15 things I didn't get done. And this guy's like, no, no, there's 15 things you're conscious of that you didn't get done, but there's infinite things you didn't complete today. Mm. And something about that awareness just takes a massive weight off my shoulders to go, oh, okay, like, Sure, no matter how good your time management, no matter how much you rush, no matter how much you hustle, there's there's way more that you're not getting done than you're ever going to get done. And I think uh, this is relevant, obviously, to, to all of us in our lives in some capacity or at certain times in our life. 
but particularly with regards to running and just the the speed or the hurry that so many athletes that I work with uh, are operating at to try and get to whatever it is that they've set for themselves, whether it's a marathon or whether it's a 10K, there's no such thing as as um, too fast. And as a result, I, I often notice, whether it's myself or athletes that I'm working with, that whether it's a physical plateau in performance because your body's just not ready to absorb that kind of work or it's an actual injury that it expressed because you're not ready to absorb that kind of work. There's so much to be said on this topic. It's actually been a little bit of a theme with with this podcast recently, I feel, is just an appreciation for the um, just that slowed down nature of events that you're speaking about. And I noticed, to go back to what you said before, I used to notice if I was ever stressed or worried, um, anxious, had an argument with Jesse before I went out for a run, the run was never enjoyable because <laughs> physically I, I knew I had spent that energy on, on uh, uh, you know, whatever emotional stimulant it was. I had certain athletes. Uh, Kale Simons was a guy I used to train with. He's a uh, eight oh three runner. He, yeah, you remember Kale? Yeah, he came to Leonora a few times. He did. He actually he, did. he actually won a race we had one year called the Ghost the Ghost Town five K. I think he ran about fourteen forty odd. Yeah, he was a good athlete actually. He was he, he, he was, was a good a, athlete. He was very bouncy, on, up on his toes the whole time. Oh, you know him well. He, he it's exactly right. Yeah, I used to dread getting phone calls from him when we were sixteen and I first moved back to Victoria because Every time I got a phone call from Kale, it meant he'd beaten another one of my PBs by 46 seconds. <laughs> so he, would, <laughs> he was good. Yeah, he, he could was, have been good. What happened to him? Man, he was a little bit um, a little bit sporadic. I'm not sure if uh, – he wouldn't mind me saying this. I think he would probably agree. He, he stepped into the sport and he was such a natural talent that big results came very quickly. And yeah. I think some of the work ethic that comes with having to work a little bit for really good results wasn't quite there. I don't know whether that was temperament or whether that was he was he was just a little bit blessed genetically um, in the mm. physical department, and as a result, I don't I don't think we saw what we could have seen with Kale based on the fact that uh, probably wasn't consistent enough with with his training. I'm sure I reckon uh, I haven't seen him for a while, but I think he would tell you that if he was speaking to you now. Um, but why was I talking about Kale Simons? I was talking. Oh, he was one guy. Sorry, that was was great. If if he wanted to run well, he would get himself angry before a race. Like I would watch Kale yeah, before okay. a time trial, before a race, just get into the most angry state and come out and have the race mm. of his life where if I had that kind of emotion, it was just a guaranteed shocker. I always liked carrying a bit more of a stable uh, kind of approach. If I was emotionally pretty steady, training had been going well, um, I was in a good mood on the day of the race, often that was where my best races took place. So it's interesting. I think, yeah. yeah, I think it depends on you know, if, if you if you look at um... – the energy system that's involved in an event, even though we, we, we sort of tend to think, oh, this person does this, that or the other, um, in terms of how a 1,500-metre runner might need to be prepared and how they might need to be to be in a ready state to produce energy very quickly versus a, a threshold-based athlete doing a 10K or a, Great point. Um, a, a half marathon or a, or a fat max aerobic threshold based athlete running a marathon it's really about understanding what substrate you're trying to get them to utilize and if if the engine if the engine is the heart and lungs are going to be the limiting factor then you can get jacked up you know if it's only you're only going to be running for nine minutes you, you do want some adrenaline in the system but if you're running for two hours uh, in a marathon and you're getting your adrenal cortex firing and you start burning glycogen you're going to run out of it and so it's about sort of understanding i think the physiology and the context and getting an athlete to be in a ready state for the specific task you're 
basically going to ask them to do because you know you you know it's like um the ant on the ferrari i get a lot of athletes to explain to me what they think is happening in their body and obviously i'll sit and say that i've got a very good understanding from a theoretical basis of what's happening in the body but if i observe the body i'm constantly amazed by um what I don't know, and the body is infinitely more intelligent than any person. You have to understand that the engineering of the body is 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 incredible, and no one will ever comprehend it fully. So you can understand parts of it, but then you get athletes who understand none of it, who are making decisions from a a perspective of complete unknowing. Um, and that's where I think for sort of athletes, coachability becomes super defining in terms of is someone able to trust that someone might be a master and they might be a student or do they think that they're a master when really they're an ant on the Ferrari thinking they understand how that thing revs when someone's engineered that many times before has has understood exactly how each of the components interacts. You'll often get the ant telling the engineer how the Ferrari works. Uh, you know, uh, you've, yeah. if you understand the nature of one of the biggest things I look for is when an athlete understands who's who's got knowledge and who who has an opinion and the difference of weight between the two when it comes to long-term outcomes. And, um, yeah, it's very important that in our modern day and age where people get information quickly, um, knowledge and wisdom takes years and decades to acquire. And if you want to get good outcomes, you're better off trusting knowledge and wisdom than uh, opinions and, and quick grabs. That's a great point. That's a great point. Man, outside of Patrick Sanger, are there any other coaches that you really enjoy listening to? I liked, um, obviously, in Australia. I mean, obviously, um, I, I really enjoyed, I caught up with Dick Telford recently oh. in Canberra. I, 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 my bias is to, to seek wisdom and to seek the counsel of people who have more experience and knowledge than I have, um, more so than peer groups and and hanging out with people who have the same ambition and uh, I'd rather learn off people who have got a bit further down the path and can give me um, insights and experience and, and motivation to try to keep up the longevity. So Pat Clohesse and, and um, a few times I spent with him, uh, I think his um, his energy and his uh, his knowledge and, and outcomes with Deke and some of the great years of Australian running when the RES first started it was, was fantastic just to see how humble he was. Um, and then I, I enjoyed, I really enjoyed um, with Renato Canova spending some time learning off him. And then I think some of the context of how he coaches in Africa is relevant and some of it not so much. So, for instance, it was good, really good again to have had that time in Kenya with him when I was coaching Habtom because I had some reference from some of the, the track work that um, uh, was he was giving to some of his guys like Ronald Quemboy, who's a 328 guy. Um, Eric Kiptanui, who's a 68 half marathon. When I was with him, they were all preparing for a 5K. So I got to see some of the sort of benchmarks for what, you know, what say a, uh, a runner at the global level might run at 1700 metres above sea level for a, a certain VO2 max workout or, or track preparation session. So it gave me some good referencing. But otherwise, for the marathon runners, you sort of, it was hard. It's hard to, to push athletes in Western culture as hard as he was because bar your sort of Liam Adams or some of those really hardy, durable athletes, they just wouldn't tolerate the amount of work he was giving to those guys. That was very, um, it was very good to see how hard they train. But the way I look at training load is um, there's almost like a genetic training load, which is the, the last 10 generations of your family, which is probably 
the most foundational, which is, you know, in Kenya now you've got generations of farmers who have eaten organic food and run to school and they're running two and a half thousand Ks a week from the time they're five. And by the time they leave school, they've run twelve and a half thousand kilometres and all the capillaries and all the conditioning that gives them by the time they're leaving primary school compared to a Western kid who might run 25 Ks a week um, at most. You start to see that um, that's the next thing, which is the the lifetime training load, which is the, the the amount of running a person has done within their karmic experience and their life experience, and and you can't not consider that. So if you if you come across a kid, for instance, I could almost see at a private school now a kid who's a farmer just by looking at how they move, you can see when a kid's from the farming, whereas a kid's from a blue blooded family with parents who sit in an office, you can sense just by looking at how they move and how they interact with things, if someone's a country boy who's got a bit or someone who's a city boy who's probably not got much, yeah, you know, yeah. you can just sense from the energy, you know. So then the next thing is the chronic training load we look at in the data that we collect. Um, and then the final thing is the acute training load of what you're seeing in a given day. So when I look at um, how well or how much an athlete's likely to tolerate training, you look back as far as you possibly can to get, a look at what their what their family nature is, what their nature is, and, and then start to build off off that deeper understanding. And the African the African guys have just got such a, a massive infrastructure because from the time they're one, they don't have access to sealed roads, so they're they're not in prams. They're they're walking and running, um, and they're, that's why they're so good at at running because you know they've they've done the work and it's work they haven't even been conscious of. It's just part of their culture and. Um, yeah, it's it's amazing when you watch things like the the marathon last weekend and you see that manifest and it looks so impressive. Um, but it's 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 generations of work and and a guy who's fully committed to to the simple act of putting one foot in front of the other. And still, after all these years, I just love watching that and trying to understand how that happens and um, and just enjoy being a fan of that sort of thing. You know, for sure. So just to clarify, are you saying like? you reckon there's a, a big correlation or at least a correlation between how much running has been done with the generations before you and that impact on your ability to be able to perform as a runner? Yeah, 100% because yeah. your, your, you, I mean, your, your eyes, uh, you had no control over your eyes. They're a reflection of your, your lineage a long way back, your facial structure, your bone structure, all, all everything that you are, there's elements of your memory that are, uh, uh, modifiable and there's elements of your nature that are non-modifiable and the non-modifiable aspects of genetics um, yeah every culture reflects um, ancestry in that way yeah, yeah man it was so interesting you say that because just today I was reading a little bit about uh, Western Western A Price I'm not sure if you've heard that name before no. I hadn't until a week ago so he was a dentist I think back in like the 30s and 40s and he traveled around um, just trying to discover really good, solid dental health, whether there was any tribe or people group that were free of cavities and free from the things that we often see in our gums and teeth in Western societies. And it was often um, like I think Aboriginal Australians in, in some parts were, were an example of this, but also some of the African indigenous tribes um, all around the world who are on a relatively natural whole food diet but one thing that he spoke about was exactly what you just mentioned, but with regards to like dental health and tooth structure, he said, the reason that we see such poor teeth today is because generations before us started to develop poor 
poor dental health. Whereas over there, the reverse was true. Like if your your great 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 granddad had like a, a whole food, natural, relatively healthy diet for or what you had access to, and as a result, like that particular gene, or you know, for lack of a better word, I'm not sure if gene's the right way to explain it, but uh, that particular structure was just passed Party. on down. And I thought, oh, isn't that? I'd never really considered that my mm. ancestor had much of an impact on you know, without the obvious, you know, height and things like that. I never really considered things like, you know, tooth structure or, or running ability, but even just sort of being pre-prepped with that, I go, yeah, of course, it makes sense that the, mm. the people that come before us have an impact on the way that we're able to perform. I think it'd be really, really uh, cool for you. You should go and do some work in Kenya because the other thing is because um, everybody is is much more aware of community. They've got a lot more accessibility and a lot less ego. You You can... You could go up there and start interviewing you know, almost any any great champion because they're so humble. Um, but just to see that the absolute depth, if you go to Iten and um, see that there's probably, oh, there's literally hundreds of guys running around there who've never got a manager, never got an agent, never had a contract to race outside of Kenya who could break 210 at the flip of a hat. You know, it's... Um, <laughs> It's it's a bit mind blowing where the depth the depth is sort of was the first time I went there was beyond my comprehension um, because it's almost like uh, yeah I mean I think in any in I mean it, it, it's beyond Kenya now into various parts of East Africa but if you go to a, a high altitude farming land you're essentially predicting that there's been a relatively slow development there's been a relative need therefore for that person to run or that culture of people to run to get to where they're getting to because um, of a range of factors but because they've learned how to farm they are growing food from farm to plate for their own family so there's a certain care and um, responsibility that comes with um, cultivating food for yourself versus mass-produced processed food that we consume and so the depth, it was just absolutely mind-blowing, mate. You, you wouldn't believe it. Um, and so you, you, if, you, if, if there was um, a few Kenyan agencies, which I do hope happens in the future, where uh, some former Kenyan runners like potentially a Ellawood Kipchoge becomes an agent with global sports and, and helps the next generation of Kenyans come out, there's just so much depth that's not able to get access to the opportunities. Um, It'd be great to see see more opportunities come out, and you can see how good they're going now. But that when you go to Kenya, there's so much more that's not getting even a chance to get that competitive opportunity. Have you spent much time over there? I spent uh, with Mark C, Ben Green, and Philo. Philo Saunders. Oh, uh, we oh, went man. There. He's a bloke. He's a bloke. You got to put me in touch with. I'd love to get Philo oh, on here, mate. The fittest, the fittest forty something in the country. He's <laughs> still still at two percent body fat. Philo, he's unbelievable. I don't know how he does it. Um, uh, so yeah, so we went there, and then I went back with a group just before COVID, 2019, I think it was. But I'm, I'm, I'm I've a few little things to to make sure ducks line up in terms of just things at home. But I'd love to go back in the next year or so because through COVID, we've got a lot of international uh, online clients that that um, aren't short of um, flexibility and money who would love to go there um, and just have a bit of a trip with some sort of executive or or corporate type clients just to take them um around and, and get an experience there because they're the ones that are i think really wanting to get out there and check it out um and, and see what it's like it's it, yeah I'd, I'd love to do it every few years to be honest maybe yeah, even we, when my kids are a bit older uh, spend some time like renato does living there and coaching um african athletes just to get a chance to um test test um 
how far how fast you can get a human being to run. I think that's um, what coaching is all about. How fast can you coach somebody to run? And a lot of it you realise is outside of your control. And and uh, if you wanted all the factors within your control to line up, you would probably base yourself somewhere in East Africa and um, and get the chance to work with some of those fantastic athletes. Yeah, it's been pretty wild just seeing the progress in the marathon over the last couple of weeks, hasn't it? It's just, as you say, yeah. like I'm sure so many of these yeah. factors we've touched on play some kind of an impact on it. But what have you made of the, I mean, both the men's and the women's records being absolutely annihilated the last month? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think with everything, it's hard not to be just a, a little bit um, wary of being too yeah. evangelical about it. Um, but I, I think, look, um, there's still so many factors that you can guarantee they have, um, you know, just you know, with discipline applied themselves to and 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 the sort of fitness and the performance that's come out of post-COVID period in all the track events. I think the technology in the shoes and all the shoe companies obviously have done a fantastic job with the different sort of the polyamides and the um, the PBACs, um sort of technology in the shoes is obviously helping, but the athletes I think. Um, are obviously getting very very fit and then i think the other thing is just the the impact of positive psychology when you think you're going to run fast you'll run fast and i think there's a there's there's a benefit there in terms of um feeding forward positive expectations and um a can-do attitude and uh and then when you sense i think some of these athletes that they're really on and it's it's that day that uh that adrenaline of of thinking that there's a moment in time that you can really do something special is a real um, projector of of performance when it's when it hits you that you can do something special there's another bit of energy that kicks in that i think we saw with um with kipton where that last uh, 10k was just staggering 1351 i think i saw for 30 to 35k and then <laughs> 1401 1401 from 35 to 40 it's like oh man i still haven't coached a, a guy to run under under that myself in a 5k it's like oh gosh Taking a knife to a gunfight, Tyson. Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I had a mate last night. I don't know what kilometre or what mile it was, but he was telling me that one of his miles was like a 4.17 towards the mm. back end there. I wonder if it's a shock to a bloke like Kip Choge that Kipton's come out and smashed a record like that. Is there? Do you think there'd be a fair awareness of the fact that there's a number of guys who are capable of running, you know, as fast, if not faster than Kip Choge? Because for the last few years, mm. he, yeah, sure, with the exception of one or two, he seems to have just been absolutely head and shoulders above the rest of the field. I think everything everything exists uh, in a spectrum and everything's sort of impermanent, but it's still, when it's personal to you, I'm sure there's a bit of reactivity, um, you know, like uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure he'd be feeling a, a bit of a response, probably much less than some people would, but I'm sure. I mean, it's human nature, right? Um, when you realise that, you've you've been that person and then that time um you know is is moving on and you've got to rationalize that it's a reality now and people are going to start talking about him in the same sentence and not just you alone and um, i think for most people there's a period of adjustment when that happens in any context of life whether it's a person that replaces you at work or the person who an athlete moves and starts getting coached to, but ultimately you've got to realise what's in your control and what's not. And, and he's had such a great career that I think in the fullness of time, you'd imagine with his humility, he would reflect on all the great things he's done and, and wish well for 
um, for Kipton. But I'm sure, you know, we all have that, that mind that's got that that little what about me, mate. You know that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know it. I know it better than most, I think. It's, uh, yep. Yeah, it's very true. It's interesting. You put them on a pedestal sometimes physically, sometimes mentally. But, yeah, it'd be a surprise if, uh, if, he, if he wasn't a little bit either planning his next race and seeing if he can have a, a big crack at a time like that or – you know, maybe just having a couple of conversations about what he has achieved. <laughs> just well, moment. I reckon if he if he genuinely reconciled it, we would have seen a public congratulations and acknowledgement. Yeah. I would have thought it hasn't been tweeted yet. I haven't seen anything yet. <laughs> so I think uh, even even the great Yoda master of Kipchoge has a little a little uh, boy with. Uh, that uh, that want to be the centre of attention forever. I would have thought that's human nature, mate. <laughs> yeah, for sure, Raf. I um I I got one more question for you. I was just curious to pick your brain. I know you have a science uh, or a scientific approach to the work that you put in, and uh, I think it's a subject that I'm often interested in because I would say that I'm the, from the opposite side of the spectrum. I when I moved back from Perth to Victoria, I went and trained with 79 year old Joe Carmody, and there was no talk oh, wow. of heart rate. There was no talk of pace. There was a lot yeah. of talk of perceived effort or not even in those words just he goes all right this is about eight out of ten effort I was like I think I know where that is and something about that was beautiful because I I felt like it forced you to really go okay like if you're being honest with yourself how hard am I working right now but if you put a stopwatch on and track the data that comes with a you know a rate of perceived effort of eight out of ten sometimes what you think you're doing and the truth of what you're actually doing is very different things so how do you sort of how do you balance that approach? Because I think there's something to be said for awareness of yourself as an athlete, what you're feeling, what you're capable of, especially on race day. But also, um, you know, in the name of consistency, and you know, to go back to to Dean, the ability of being able to be consistent for eight years without missing a beat is honesty about what the actual data is saying. So so where do you sort of balance those two things? I, th- I think the scientific approach I think works best the longer the race is so if you just imagine on a continuum that um the physiology demand is less in a marathon than it is in say a 1500 an 800 or even a 5k or a 10k so i would say that the load management is far less important the shorter the distance you're running yeah yeah but when you look at the psychology of the marathon where you're trying to um, understand delayed gratification concepts where you're trying to distribute finite resources over a period of time that's where I think the scientific approach works and I think I would probably be completely contrary to that if I was a middle distance coach I for instance in all my um, uh, time racing never used a watch I don't run with a watch Mm -hmm. now Um, I have no interest in a watch if I was in a race I just wanted to try to win so I, I never raced though the, the marathon. So I raced um, in races from 800 meters to 10,000 meters. And all I really focused on when I was competing was trying to win. So the watch to me was sort of a red herring. But yeah. when, you, when, you, when you race is essentially with yourself like the marathon, then it's a different, different situation. So I think it's really about uh, understanding the different trade-offs of, of um what type of monitoring and what type of load management you want to use. And you're not just managing the external load, you're managing the internal load, the stress of the athlete with, you know, life, um, work, uh, you know, the training as well. So there's a lot of factors. Um, So I think it's really about being adaptable, not saying one way is perfect and one way is not. Um, 
I think it's about being adaptable. And what you'll find is if, if a human being is, is told to, as long as there's a good education around perceived effort, over time mm-hmm. they'll become very good at um, controlling intensity through perceived effort. Um, so, for instance, I'm sure in, in Africa a lot of the runners are very good at gauging their effort by perceived effort without a Garmin. Um, so whatever measurement you're using to measure intensity, as long as you have a good understanding of what the goal is and what the intensity control needs to be, perceived effort, heart rate, um, pace, all these things can be used as appropriate and you don't want to become fixed on one um, mm. at the expense of others. So I think I think it depends completely on the context, on the athlete, on the, what they've got available and also what distance they're focusing on. Because, yeah, a lot of the people, when you're getting them to run a, a an event like a 1500, you have to sort of be outside of yourself. Whereas... What I would say is, from my experience with marathon runners, if someone is constantly outside of themselves and reactive in a marathon, they'll often be at the side of the road at 32K because the battle is not with anybody else. It's with your own self. And it, if you can't, if you get someone with like a really extrovert personality who says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and you put them in a marathon, eventually they have to talk to themselves because there's no one there to help them and when they talk to themselves they've never done it because they're always talking to someone and telling everyone what they're going to do and in the marathon you just have to talk to yourself and an introvert a person who says very little and just does what needs to be done methodically and and with a good positive nature you know like a prototype would be like if you look at how lovely i mean jess stenson she's winning the commonwealth games and thanking the crowd i mean that's a, a benevolent um unique personality profile where someone would be so humble as to be thanking the crowd who are in awe of what she's doing that's mm. a unique characteristic of a human being and uh, dean's a bit like that very humble and he's comfortable suffering inside his own head but he's never going to say to you he's going to do this or he's going to do that and the people that tell you they're going to do this they're going to do that they're often pretty good on the track but if you take them to the road and they have to talk to themselves their voice becomes very negative when they start yeah. to get tired and no one's listening and they have to deal with their own demons and those demons sometimes um, they, they, they can't manage and they need to learn if they want to get good at the marathon because it's an internal battle. So it depends about context and the personality of each person and it's very rare you find someone who's great at everything. Um, certain people by nature have to really challenge themselves to, to change and grow when they change event groups and a lot of it's to do with their perspective not necessarily just their physiology Um, and that's where say for instance with Dean he's brilliant in the marathon but if I put him in a 5k I'm constantly trying to rev him up because he wants to work the numbers and I want him to play the man (laughs) Um, you know you know what I mean so no one's perfect mate does that make sense oh it makes a lot of sense it's actually a great point I'd never really thought about it like that like you'll often see a an athlete who's very vocal about what they believe they're capable of doing, a Shikari Richardson or, a, you know, even a Muhammad Ali to, to someone from another sport. And you go, okay, well, that is clearly a, a pretty good sign that you obviously back yourself and you've got a good foundation to be able to work off if you've got the genetic potential. But the idea that that doesn't necessarily correlate, I often get frustrated in the marathon world. I'm like, I would love a Conor McGregor type for, figure to come out just to it'd be a pain in the ass but it'd just be so funny to watch like which marathon runner has a reputation like that but perhaps it's no coincidence um you know just to use you know go back to your example that there's marathon run there's there's very few marathon runners like that because maybe by nature they are a little more introverted or at least aware of the fact that it is an inward battle rather than some outward projection 
but yeah, you're right. Like the the idea of a track runner responding well to that outward talk is perhaps no surprise. But yeah, in a two and a bit hour event, yeah, good luck with that approach. Yeah, yeah, you're tiring yourself out. Yeah, so yeah, I think it's uh, that's the beauty of it. When you when I'm watching each event group, you see the different personalities. Like oh, I go down to the track last night and I see the sprinters strutting up and down the track, and I'm convinced it's a neurosis because there's so much gap between reps that every sprinter seems to strut. It's almost like a subconscious posturing. Like I've heard that we're 98 percent the DNA of. Uh, of a monkey but when you look at people's behavior and find out what works in different contexts mm. you start to see all these behaviors that people exhibit that become normalized that just represent the context of you know if you're an animal in the jungle and you're a tiger about to fight you posture that you're big and strong and it's almost like sometimes at the track when i watch the sprinters it's almost like this is like the jungle these guys are strutting <laughs> around and posturing and shoulders back and it's like mate we reckon we're so smart we're, we're looking more like the jungle every minute i've got to go to the track it's just like watching different animals posturing to show their their relative benefits to others you know and, um yeah i mean have you ever seen a sprinter who doesn't strut yeah no i don't i don't think they exist they're 1500 meter runners aren't they <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, oh, well. Raf, dude, really good to catch up with you as it always is, man. Thanks, uh, thanks so much for coming on and, and having a chat. I knew I'd love it. I'll make sure uh, for anyone interested that I, I link the website and anything else that you want me to in the uh, description to this episode below. So if you're interested in finding that more, make sure you uh, you check that out. But mate, thanks again. Well, mate, thank you very much, and congratulations on all your your hard work and consistency with the podcast, mate. It's great to see it going from strength to strength. Thanks for listening to the Relaxed Running Podcast. If you're ready to become a faster, more efficient runner, visit www.relaxedrunning.com.